Hey friends, we've got an exciting program that I want to share with you, our upcoming Climate Leadership Accelerator Into the Arena. It's designed for those of us who feel compelled to influence climate leadership in our organisations and communities. In the program, you'll deepen your understanding of the systems operating within the climate crisis and connect with an incredible network of leaders, challenge your own assumptions and develop a hopeful framework for action. So head to smallgiants.com.au slash into the arena to learn more and apply. This podcast is supported by Bank Australia, Australia's first customer-owned bank. Bank Australia invests 4% of its after-tax profits in projects that benefit people, our communities and the planet. To find out more, go to bankost.com.au, where you bank every day does make a difference. There's a, a lot of people that don't manage to understand that when you invest in something like quality ingredients, like farmers' livelihood, like community sustainability, they see that as a cost. And, and that's the whole trick. It's not a cost. Hi there, and welcome to the Dumbo Feather podcast a monthly series where we chat with inspiring, thought-provoking guests who are doing their bit to make the world better. I'm Nathan Scolaro, editor of Dumbo Feather magazine, and in this episode we're hearing from Jostine Solheim, CEO of Ben & Jerry's, a social justice company that just happens to sell ice cream. Jostine believes in using business as a force for good and prides Ben & Jerry's on being a highly emotional company, one that infuses equality, inclusion and a sense of belonging in all they do. This conversation between Jostein and our publisher, Barry Liberman, is surprising, funny, and full of passion. It starts off with a bang, so for those of you who are unfamiliar, you might quickly be asking, what's a B Corp? B Corp is to business what fair trade certification is to coffee. B Corps are for-profit companies that meet rigorous standards of social and environmental performance, accountability, and transparency. You can find out more about them via the link in our show notes. On that note, here's Jostein and Barry. So my, oh, so many questions, but maybe you want to start by giving everyone some context about Ben and Jerry's, because Dan and I love Ben and Jerry's, and and some people here who know that Ben and Jerry's is a B Corp, but yeah, yeah, let's start there. Yeah, so hi, good morning, everyone. It's it's great to be here. Um, Yeah, yeah, this actually is one of those things because a lot of people know Ben and Jerry's from the ice cream, um, and you know, think that that's sort of that. Uh, so it's always important to recognize that's not what Ben & Jerry's is all about. Ben & Jerry's is a social justice company that happens to be selling ice cream. And uh, Unilever acquired Ben & Jerry's in 2000 and it created a forerunner for the B Corp movement uh, in many ways because it's a very unique set of circumstances. It says Ben and Jerry on the front of the pack and Ben and Jerry are two real people. So if Ben and Jerry go out and say, you know, this is all just crap, um, that's going to be a real downwards elevator for, the, for, the, for that brand and that business. So Unilever uh, was willing then to construct an acquisition agreement that basically gave full ownership to Unilever, but have an independent board of directors that uh, sets a social mission policy and can stop any action by the CEO that they deem goes against the integrity of the Ben & Jerry's brand. 
So Unilever owns the business, but does not have control over one of the most important aspects of the business. And uh, most people, when they see that acquisition agreement, said this is the dumbest acquisition agreement they've ever seen. Uh, I can just say uh, Unilever acquired SlimFast for about 10x more than Ben & Jerry's on the same month. And they gave SlimFast to private equity for free last uh, year. And Ben & Jerry's has been a very successful acquisition. So actually not allowing the multinational to integrate has been a, 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 huge, a huge success. I say that because we basically run with a, the same three-part mission that we had back in the, in the 80s, which is nearly a four-part mission, because it's a bit of a cheat, because we have our product mission, which is about making the absolutely best possible product in the most natural way with the least negative impact on the environment. Most people call that a double you know, but that's one of our missions. The second mission is our economic mission, which is to return a, a sustainable return for our shareholders. And the third mission is our social mission, which is to positively impact human rights and, uh, uh, around the world. So these, this three-part mission guides every single decision at the company. I also like to say to people, because a lot of people think when they hear all of the things that we do, um, that we don't make any money. So I just like to put out, we don't publish our results, but we are the world's most profitable ice cream company. Just so we're clear. This is, <laughs> this is not a charity. This, if you own this company, you would be very, very happy. <laughs> so it's just really important because- Why does everyone do that? We get that at small giants all the yeah. time, which is, yeah. we get a lot of people pitching to us philanthropy. Yeah. And we keep saying, this yeah. is not this a is philanthropic not. Yeah. charity organization. Yeah. We are a for-profit business yeah. that's here to contribute meaningfully to the yeah. planet and to the community. So why is that I think segmented? There's, there's a, a lot of people that don't manage to understand that when you invest in something like quality ingredients, like farmers' livelihood, like community sustainability, they see that as a cost. And, and hence, when they see that as a cost, they don't understand that there's a return on that investment. And hence, they think it's going to be a lower profitability than if you didn't invest in those things. And, and that's the whole trick. It's not a cost. It's an investment. There are things in our business that are costs, and we go after those costs just as ruthlessly as anyone. But we treat these things as investments, and, and we get a return on those investments in, in different ways. So I think that's that's the bit that people really struggle with. Like we have a you know a carbon tax. We invest a, a lot of money back into the community, but we also then charge that back to our consumers who who are part of that journey. So how did you? I need I need this. I need more of the story. I need. Were you, what were you passionate about as a 20-something? Did you imagine you'd be the CEO of an ice cream company coming through Unilever? Like, no. Who was your stand before? No, no. I, I grew up in Norway <laughs> and I went to school uh, in Canada and I went to one of these United World Colleges, which uh, brings sort of 60 countries together around building sustainable peace. And that changed my life. So it started there. And uh, then I, like everybody else in the world, had no clue what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, I still argue I don't quite know what I want to do with my life. And uh, it's the most thing that, particularly at business schools, I was at Stanford last uh, uh, Thursday, 
with very a group of very aggressive MBA students, and they really want a formula for a career. And you know, what are you gonna? What you know? How did you know? And I was like, I had no clue. <laughs> you know, I do things that I really believe in, that I'm passionate about. I never take on anything for status and or other reasons than being passionate about it. And then life is just a wonderful world of coincidences that <laughs> collide together, and you wake up in Vermont. <laughs> 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 we were having that conversation before where we were saying the word career is like a weird word. Yes, yes. I mean, you know, I, I, I like to joke in the, uh, at least in the Unilever context, you know, Ben and Jerry's really ruined my career because, I, you know, you're supposed to move every few years and change the title. That's a definition of a career rather than, you know, having a, a, a life with impact and meaning and doing things you're passionate about. So, uh, so I came to Ben and Jerry's. I averaged two, two and a half years, three years per role, you know, around about 30 countries up until then, thinking, oh, I'll be there for a little while. And of course, you discover the depth and the meaning of how you can do business truly, not just in small aspects of your business, but holistically end to end. And I got stuck. So I've been there for seven years now, and I can't quite, you know, Nobody has another job for me. So <laughs> maybe that's something to do with what we do as well, because we do upset a lot of people. <laughs> it's a very polarizing business. You know, when you support Black Lives Matter, etc., in America, uh, you get as much hate mail as you do get love mail. So. <laughs> what do you feel about that? Oh, I'm, I'm feeling absolutely fine about it. You know, you're not going to change the world and make everybody happy. And uh, if you take a stand on something, uh, you don't know it that you've taken a stand if, until somebody gets angry. Because, I mean, if everybody likes it, are you really taking a stand? I mean, you're, 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 then you're in the middle. So, so we take a stand and we recognize that, that people will get angry and we recognize that there will be an opposing point of view. And we're happy for people to eat our ice cream and not agree with us. And we're also happy if you don't want to eat the ice cream because you don't agree with us. So, but that's net net has worked out really well for us because the people that know what we do and agree with what we do, which is about 40% of our people, are about two and a half times as loyal as the other people. So they make all the difference for our business. So they'll go to the freezer at 7-Eleven and buy Ben and Jerry's on purpose? Yeah, on full price. We love them. <laughs> so hang on, there's a gap for me in that story. How did you go from what sounds like quite an extraordinary university experience, and you're from Norway, mm. like no one in their right mind leaves Norway. No, that's true. In the, <laughs> the way the world is yeah. currently. It's like this oasis yeah. of amazingness, yeah. politically, socially, yeah. yeah. governance-wise. I'm, I'm not trying to rub it in. but No, no, it's true. How did you get from there to Unilever? And then yeah. it's like... What, you want the truth? Yes. So the unprofessional answer is a woman. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> I was bumming around, having a good time, and I met somebody. And then I thought, shit, I need a job. <laughs> okay. That's the answer. <laughs> That's a brilliant answer. That was the correct answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So then how did someone who was studying peace mm. um, in a remarkable cohort of fellow student, students at university 
survive, cope, feel about being in Unilever, mm. which was not at the time you joined, no. um, headed up by, is it Paul, Paul Solman? Pullman. Paul Pullman. Yeah, yeah, he's a bit yeah. of a legend. Yeah, he, well, so it was very interesting. Uh, <coughs> you know, I, was, I, I, I finished my study at the London School of Economics and uh, came out and, um, yeah, needed a job, met this girl, wanted to stay around. And um, it was very interesting. I joined Unilever very much on purpose because it was a company that made things and it was a company with a really proud history of caring and of investing back in communities. So it was a very conscious choice. That said, um, all my friends in Norway uh, and my mother's friends and yeah, whole family basically he said, he's sold out, he's joined the devil, this is horrible, this is just terrible, how could you do this? So it took quite a while, you know. Um, and, and what's been great, of course, is uh, with Paul, we've, we've brought that back. Can you just explain what's happened at Unilever? Yeah. So, so uh, Paul Pullman came in as CEO of Unilever nine years ago, eight years ago. And, uh, uh, and he really started to look at the company and looked at its history and looked at its values and we launched the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. So, so Paul is one of like, the biggest fans of Ben & Jerry's. He, he loves the mission, the values, the business model. Our model is called Link Prosperity, we can talk about that. So he's really taken that and applied it to a multinational company of 175,000 people. And he's trying to build purpose into every single brand. Um, you know, the eradication of poverty, the SDG goals. He is really embedding that throughout Unilever. And actually, that, that segues into the board, because you were talking about the board of directors of Ben and & Jerry's, and they're an activist board. Yes. What does that yes. mean? Yeah. No, it, it's, it's truly remarkable. So basically, the acquisition agreement set out a board of 11 people. And Unilever has two seats, so the CEO sits on the board and they can appoint one other. So basically the independent directors have total control and they self-select and self-govern. So Unilever has absolutely no influence over that at all. So on my board I have people like Annie Leonard who is the executive director of Greenpeace North America. Um, and she's one of the very reasonable ones. <laughs> so, I mean, this is, a, this is not like, you know, oh, you have a board and now you put all your best friends on it and they all agree with you. No, not at all. <laughs> so it's a, it's a really governance with teeth and we, you know, we have eight full days together, uh, you know, four board meetings of two days. Um, you know, we run deep social audits. So we audit and, and track and measure everything we do so that when we say we have a social impact, we actually can show we have a social impact. Um, and, and the board, you know, can basically stop any, any action that they see against the integrity of the brand, which gives them quite a broad base. So, for example, on, on you know, I don't know, the GMOs became a big uh, debate item in Australia, but, you know, we, we are a non-GMO company. We're a company that believes that consumers have the right to know what's in their food and that then they can make their own decisions. You know, if you know what's in the food, you can decide whether you want to buy it or not. The food industry in America did not found that very inconvenient and didn't want the consumers to have to make those terrible choices of knowing whether there's GMO or not in their food. So we were the only company, along with the organic companies, who were, were, were basically promoting a mandatory labeling law. Uh, and Unilever and all the other companies were sort of on the other side. 
And, uh, and that really shows you when governance really matter, because it was very clear that, you know, even like in California, we had to file lobbying for a law and against a law from the same company, because, you know, Unilever owns Ben & Jerry's. So, but it stuck. You know, it was very clear. We, we had the lawyers, and we sat down, and we said, no, no, my job is to implement the campaigns and the policies of Ben & Jerry's, and this is what we believe in and what we stand for. And we did it very, it was done very friendly-like and, you know, very, it was, wasn't, it was not a, a nasty situation, but it was definitely tense. You know, the president of Unilever North America sits on a GMA board that was the people we were fighting. I mean, we were campaigning against them. It was a rather uncomfortable year for him. Do you feel like business has a powerful role to play? in the changing of the tide, both politics, opinion, behaviour, lifestyle? Oh, huge, yeah. I mean, you know, I think, I, I mean, this is a very big topic, particularly in America of today, um, where we have a, an active resistance movement. But, um, but I think, you know, what our, our model is, is, uh, is not just about what we say, but it's very much about what we do. And, uh, and we call that the linked prosperity model. So what we try to do is, and this is something that they realized very early on, was they looked at you know, their P&L, and Jerry and Ben are not very financially savvy. I mean, this really should not have worked out. <laughs> it's a miracle. But, uh, <laughs> but they looked at their P&L and they said, wow, look at that, we're spending a ton of money on ingredients, obvious. It's like, so if we give away like six, seven percent of our profits, that's actually quite a small amount of money, particularly when you're a small company, and they committed to like seven and a half percent of profits, uh, compared to what, what we're buying. So that's when this idea of the values-led buying and the linked prosperity logic, which is that we, you know, we, we buy ingredients from farming communities, we build programs in and around those ingredients, uh, to build prosperity in those communities. We transfer those raw materials into, with our suppliers. We want our suppliers to be B Corps uh, and or people like Grayston Bakery that, that you know, bake all of our brownies. And uh, you know, it's, a, it's a B Corp that hires formerly incarcerated people, uh, total open hiring. We, inside our own system, pay a living wage. So you walk off the street, you don't get a minimum wage, you get a living wage. Uh, Etc. We work through this circular uh, economy concept, and, and the interesting part is, as we're getting into selling into the communities, you know, we sell an outrageously expensive product, mainly in the big cities. You know, so we don't want to just stop there and say, "Oh, you can save a child in Africa by spending a lot of money on Ben and Jerry's." We then engage with the issues that are relevant in that community as well. And by engaging those people and our fans, which is what we call our consumers, I call our fans, and we treat our fans like they're, they're owners, they're stakeholders in our company. And by leveraging the power of our fan base, we can sort of get back in to create a sustained living income for the farming community. And that's the sort of logic of our, of our system. So it's really putting our money uh, where our mouth is. And then we overlay it. Uh, with campaigning and, and what we talk about and, uh, and how we then really, really engage them. I want to ask you about culture. Mm. I want to ask you about purpose. And I want to ask you about leadership and creativity. Right. 
Which one are you going to start with? Purpose. <laughs> Purpose. So, uh, uh, you know, f for us, for me as an individual and, and for our organization, uh, purpose is really, uh, you know, the lighthouse. It's the, what guides us and drives us. It's how we unlock uh, individuals in our organization and ensure that, you know, we're, we're a really high-performance uh, team. And, and, and I think having a greater organizational purpose that goes beyond just making ice cream um, is really, really critical. And it actually makes us much better at making ice cream because it's much more important than that. So if you look at like we have about 400 people that make our ice cream in Vermont in two manufacturing sites, it is one of the best run factories in the world. We have the lowest waste rate anywhere. Anyone there is empowered to stop the line if they see something is wrong, if they see somebody that doing something unsafe, they have to intervene. So we hit like all the kids, because that's with making ice cream, but with more than making ice cream. We're trying to do something bigger than that, and they're part of that journey. So, so purpose really drives uh, not just the impact that we want to have, it also drives uh, our performance as teams and as individuals. And for me, personally, you know, you know, when you dive into your own purpose, um, you, you do get to realize that it, it's, it's both a liberation and a huge limitation. Because suddenly there's a whole swat of things that you can't do. <laughs> because you can't do it. It might pay, but you can't do it. Because it's not in your purpose. It doesn't fit with, with what you're trying to do. But then it's also extremely powerful if you can start to be very conscious about that and leverage that, both in yourself and in your teams. So, uh, so purpose is, a, is the really the, the lighthouse that drives us. So that leads me to the culture question. How much time do you spell, spend on culture in the business? It, uh, yeah, no, it's an interesting question because uh, I usually say I spend about 50% of my time. <laughs> uh, and people say, what, so you don't actually drive the business with 50% of your time? And I'm like, no, that is what drives the business, uh, is, is our culture, in, in quotation marks. I, I sort of see it as a directing energy flow in our company. Uh, we're a highly emotional company. Uh, I mean, we're very emotional. I, love, it. I yeah. love that. I love that you've just said that, because I feel like finance and emotions have always been bifurcated, mm. like split down the middle. Yeah. You cannot be a yeah. feeling whole human yeah. being yeah. and be in business and finance yeah. because it's dog-eat-dog, yeah. emotionless, no. it's not personal. Yeah. It's all fucking personal. Yeah, it's all personal. Now, the problem is you can get very high performance personal. There are many people, though, that we sort of say, I bring your whole self to work, and we're saying, you know that part there? Maybe you can leave it at home. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> So that's, that's sort of our, our thing is, you know, it's, it's really directing that and like not, not allowing that to create sort of exclusion for others and, and, and how do you really build a, a team of real difference and, uh, and real, you know, different perspectives and different personalities. But it's a huge part of the job. When I say directing energy flow, it's because I try to avoid micromanaging. So it really is around where are we going and are we feeling the courage to go there? And then, once we have the courage to go there, they don't need me. You know, they're way down the field, way before I could even think about what's the smartest first step. So, uh, so that's what I love. I love it when I can 
take a little trip like this of Asia and I come back and I see we've done like three things and I'm going like, whoa, look at that. Then nobody wanted to check in whether we wanted to take a stand on that. <laughs> Obviously not. <laughs> you were talking about um, diversity in your teams, mm. about performance, and you, you mentioned three points, equity, inclusion, and a sense of belonging. Yes. Can you expand on that? Yeah, we, we, so we're in this thing where we're suddenly becoming quite big because we're in 35 countries. And uh, we, ha we work with the Unilever system, but we're a separate entity. And, and we need to really be conscious and thoughtful about how we engage around the world with all these different cultures when we are taking a stand on a lot of different issues. And there is no longer, you know, everything is global, everything is local. So everything you do in one country you know, goes across to another country. So for us, Building high-performance teams means that we have to have all the voices uh, in those teams. And as I said, we're emotional, we're creative, and we need those voices. Uh, and we need to be very thoughtful then so that we do create that. For me, the ultimate high-performance team is a team where everybody feels a sense of belonging. I'm, you know, I'm respected here, I, I belong here, I'm free to perform. Um, and we're, you know, but we, we're trying to put tension into that by making sure we have sufficient difference in each team, gender, race, background, etc. So that's, uh, and, and we're being very thoughtful about that. We actually rejig our teams around that, not just around professional skills and knowledge. Why? What benefit does that have? High performance, high performance. It's all about performance. <laughs> so I really think that, you know, we, you know we're, trying to, we're not trying to solve linear problems, we're trying to solve uh, and, and come up with things that people go, once you see it, you say, what did I think of that? But, but we, I, I see it innovation, and innovation isn't just our new flavors, and uh, it, it's everything. How do we innovate in everything that we do? So then you, um, it, this segue, segueing nicely into the leadership conversation, you must be comfortable with discomfort. Mm. Yeah, that was part of my purpose journey was that I discovered that I have an incredible tolerance for risk. <laughs> Actually, I don't see it as risky at all. I just look at the situation. So, so that was one of my things was that, you know, I, I live in this world of ambiguity and paradox very comfortably. And, um, and that meant that I was bored out of my silly mind in certain jobs where there wasn't, you know, you were supposed to do X and Y and C. Um, and I was very happy when I was in these other jobs. And, uh, and as a company, you know, we're working very hard on, because we live in, in the world now. It's, it, it is a paradox. It's an ambi there's, there's ambiguity and paradox everywhere. So people who like the linear route forward, the world is just getting harder and harder for that in any field, finance or anything. So that's what we try to embrace as a sort of a core element of our culture. How did you get so self-aware? I had a lot of people telling me all oh, my wonderful flaws <laughs> <laughs> really early on. And then yeah, I really? No therapy or anything? It was just literally the mirror of everyone back at you? No, I, no, no, no. A lot of coaching. Coaching? Yeah. No, we practice a lot and we train a lot and we, and we have a lot of really friendly people that come in and tell us, you know, in a more structured way. So I wouldn't go as far as therapy, although I could feel like it at times. But 
we really try to get a common language and a, and a, and a very open and transparent about you know what we're good at and what we're not good at and how we can help each other. Yostan, thank you, no, thank you so so much. I want to strap you to the ground and never let you leave. <laughs> I love Australia, but like really. Do you have any HR consultants in the room? <laughs> <laughs>